amazed at how many churches, and I don't mean this critically, I love the church, and I'm saying this as an encouragement to any church listening by radio, um, how many churches have sort of laid the Word of God aside? Let me tell you, seven days without the Word makes one week. Some of you got that. Some of you are going, but it's true. It, it makes you anemic. We've got to have the Word of God. And since all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, why shouldn't we look at all of it? Amen? So we're going through Colossians. So powerful. It's such a powerful book. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you right now for the Word of God. We pray that you will speak to us, minister to us, and Lord, renew our minds and increase our faith so that, Lord God, we are strong in Jesus and not barely getting by, but strong in Him. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good tonight. All righty. Let me look at now Colossians. And, um, okay, Jeff, the clicker's not working. I'm sorry, y'all. Satan attacks us on Wednesday nights. And there it goes. Okay. Praise God. We're going to look at the awesome facts about Jesus Christ. The awesome facts. Last time we looked at Paul's prayer for the vision, the vitality, and the victory of the church. Let me tell you something. God wants you full of vision. He wants you full of vitality. And he wants you full of victory. He did not call Christians to crawl across the finish line. It's not what he did. Now, Paul is next going to praise God for remaking us as his very own children. Now, I want you to read this with me, would you? Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Amen. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Jeff, can you move the clicker box closer to me or kind of put it out there a little bit further? Thank you so much. Now, what does it mean when God says He has qualified us? The word qualified takes us back to the fact that in Adam, guess what? We were disqualified from sharing in God's glory. That was the great tragedy of the fall. When Adam sinned, his communication with God, fellowship with God, walk with God was cut. And the, I believe personally that Adam and Eve were incredible beings to look at when they were created. I believe they shined with the glory of God. The Shekinah glory rested on them like a blanket. And when they sinned it disappeared and we uh, uh, by inheritance were disqualified from sharing in God's glory we experienced paradise lost but now Jesus the second Adam has qualified us to once again enter our inheritance as children of light thank God we have now paradise found in Jesus Jesus according to Paul delivered us from the power of darkness darkness has a power it has a pull 
It is able to dominate and oppress and blind people. But according to the Holy Ghost writing through Paul, we have been delivered, which is a word meaning translated. And, and translated is the picture of a conquering king who uproots his defeated enemies and carries them away to another place. When you and I got saved, guess what? Jesus reached down and uprooted you from the kingdom of darkness. Picked you out of it. Plucked you out of it. And what did he do? He carried you to another place. And he has uprooted and removed us from Satan's sphere of darkness and has placed us into his very own kingdom. And the Holy Spirit calls Jesus' kingdom, quote, the kingdom of the Father's dear Son or the kingdom of the Son of His love. And what are the characteristics of that kingdom? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. We have been translated from the kingdom of darkness. We have, we have been taken from one kingdom and placed into another one. It's done. You don't have to work for it, scratch and claw for it. It's done. When you got saved, He transferred you to another kingdom, the kingdom of light and life. It's done. Can you say with me, it is done. You can rest in it, walk in it, trust in it, rely on it. It's done. Get a little technical with you. It's in the aorist verb tense. And you know what that means? It's the idea of a judge bringing his hammer down, bringing the gavel down, bringing it down on the gavel and saying, my sentence is, boom, When he says, you have been delivered, it's done. That ought to get you excited. He did all this. How did he do it? By the power of his shed blood. Thank God for the blood of Jesus. He says, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Thank God for the blood of the Lord. You know, when you look at the Old Testament, the rivers of blood that flowed in Old Testament times, from the endless animal sacrifices, I mean constantly, could not redeem people from their sins. Those endless animal sacrifices could not and did not suffice. They did not do it. They were a shadow of things to come. Look what the apostle wrote in Hebrews. Quote, the law is a shadow of the good things to come not the real thing themselves. So when they took that lamb, watch this, they took that innocent lamb. And I, and I know this is difficult, but this is what happened. They would cut its throat. They would pour the blood on an altar. This innocent lamb. There was a death. There was a shedding of blood. It was painful. It was difficult. But when they were doing that, God wasn't saying this is it. God was pointing down the tunnel of time to the day that the Lamb of God would be hung on the cross and die for us. Now, when they killed that lamb, it was a shadow. Only a shadow of things to come. It was not the final real thing. It was a shadow. And guess what? Let me tell you about shadows. The blood of those lambs, uh, or 
can never perfect the ones who are trying to draw near to God through the same sacrifices, he says in chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 1. That blood in the Old Testament never can perfect the ones who are trying to draw near to God through the same sacrifices that are offered continually every year. They had to do it over and over and over and over again. But the whole, one of the most important phrases in Hebrews is once for all. Jesus gave his life once for all. It never has to happen again. The sacrifices made annually under the law could not once for all perfect those who look to it. The shadow of a key cannot set a prisoner free. The shadow of a meal cannot satisfy the hunger of a starving man. The shadow of the Old Testament could not do what the blood of Jesus can do for us now. It was only a shadow. The shed blood of Christ fully satisfies our need for redemption. And you know, I was thinking today how casually we read the words, forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. But do you know where we would be if not for the forgiveness of our sins? Think about where, God, where you were when God got you. When he found you. Where were you? What were you doing? How were you living? Think about it. And think about how recently you needed the blood of Jesus to be applied to your conscience, to your soul. How re I would wager that most everyone in here today had to sometime today say, Lord, forgive me. For something, a word you shouldn't have said, thought you shouldn't have thought, an action you shouldn't have done, an attitude you shouldn't have copped. Somewhere along the way, you, you had to say, Lord, forgive me. That was stupid. That was dumb. That was fleshy. That was sinful. And isn't it good to know that as soon as you do that, you know that the blood is applied and your conscience is clean. That's what puts a smile on your face, a skip in your step, a gleam in your eye. That's what does it right there. Thank God for the blood. Mankind has groaned under the weight of guilt over sin all the way back to Eden. Modern psychology traces many emotional problems and pathologies to guilt. I'm convinced most mental problems are guilt-related because we were not wired to carry guilt. We were wired to walk with God. And so we have this guilt that just torments us, and we go to drugs to get rid of it. We grow to alcohol to get rid of it. We turn to immorality to get rid of it. We look for different ways to numb it. But there's only one cure for guilt. And it's, I wish that cross was up here, but let me just say it's the cross. The cross of Christ. It's the only way. Can I tell you the truth? The psychologist has no real answer for how to be rid of guilt. What they'll tell you to do is shift the blame to somebody else. Well, it was your dad. It was your mom. It was your granddaddy, your grandma. It was that person that did this, that, or the other thing to you when you were a child. Shift the blame. But that does not get rid of your guilt. It can't get rid of your guilt. Here's the, the answer. It's very simple. Don't shift it to other people. Shift it all to Jesus. Because watch this. He took your sin and my sin on himself on the cross he took it everything you ever did he was blamed for it if you're going to shift blame shift it to him and say 
Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow. Thank God that all the blame went to him. It's hard for us to comprehend that God looked down on that cross and said, I blame him. I blame him for everything the human race has ever done or ever will do. I blame him. And he's taking the judgment for it. He's taking the heat for it. He's taking the sentence for it. So when you go to the cross, it was all dealt with right there. Can I tell you, when you've been to the cross, it, takes, it gets rid of the guilt. Now next we come to the awesome truth about who Jesus really was. And this is one of the great, great things about Colossians. Because remember, this church in Colossae was under attack by false teachers who were marginalizing who Jesus was, what he had come to do. They were marginalizing his deity. They were minimizing him as a person. They were attacking the person and the work of Christ. They were called Gnostics, but false teachers are false teachers. That no matter what stripe they come in, they always marginalize or attack the person and work of Christ. It's very important that we know who our Jesus really is. I mean, who is this Jesus really who, who you've never even seen him, yet you love him? How did that happen? You've never seen him, but you're totally dedicated to him. You've never seen him, but you've got a romance going on with him. You've never seen him, but you talk to him every day. You've never seen him, but you know that one day you will. Who is this Jesus, really? I want you to read verse 15 of Colossians 1 with me. Read it, preach it to me. This is great. Ready? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Whoa. Now here, what did Paul, what's he saying? By the Holy Ghost. Paul reaffirms the truth about the absolute deity of Jesus Christ as creator and sustainer of the universe. Are you ready to have your minds blown tonight? I mean, if you really think about what the Bible tells us about Jesus, you'll sit there in a stupor. It's, it's almost impossible to comprehend. So great is our Savior. So great is Jesus. First, he lets us know that God is invisible and God's eternal. What is Jesus? He is the image of the what kind of God? Invisible God. So he lets us know that God is invisible and he is eternal. We simply cannot wrap our minds around that fact, but it's true. Nevertheless, it is true. It's one of those things you've got to accept by faith, that God is eternal and God is invisible. God is, has always been, and he always will be. He had no beginning, and he will have no end. Now, here's our problem with that. We are finite. Everything with us has a beginning and an end. We were born, we're going to die. You know, you're a kid, then you grow up. Life is always in a state of flux and change. 
But there is always a beginning and there is always an ending of everything we know. And so we cannot wrap finite thinking around infinite God. I can't think of a being that has always been. How can that be? You know why I can't think of it? Because I think in terms of time. And God is not bound to time. Are you ready? God created time. <laughs> he had no beginning and he's, he's going to have no end. He created time. The only thing that experiences time is that which can erode or wear away. But when you talk about God, he inhabits eternity past, eternity future. He always am. He's not in time. There is no time. You know what I can't think about? That I am eternal, but my spirit is. I wonder, what am I going to be doing a million years from now? Am I going to be bored by then? Because you know what? The Bible says you had a beginning, but you have no end. You have a beginning, but you have no end. What about that? What are we going to be doing? Well, God will keep us busy. It won't be sweat and work, though. It'll be joyful. But watch this now. Jesus told the woman at the well that God is a spirit. He has no need for a body. He exists on a plane and in a dimension totally unknown to us. God does. We have no problem imagining one who never gets tired. I don't have a problem with that. Oh, I can imagine a God who never gets tired, never gets hungry, never gets sick, never grows old, and can never be tempted. I can wrap my mind around that. Amen? We can even visualize somebody who dwells, that is, a God who dwells in a very different relation to time than we do. One who transcends time, who describes himself as the I am, who enfolds past and future into an eternal present. He always am. He lives in a present tense at all times. But eternal and invisible? That's when my mind chokes. And I pull back and I go, I can't comprehend a being who has always been. But our God has always been and always will be. The fact is that men want a God that they can touch that they can feel, that they can see. Because if I, all I know is there's a God out there who always has been and always will be, and that's all I know, I don't know how to identify with that, talk to that, fellowship with that, relate to that. I want a God I can see, touch, hear. And that's why there's always been such a problem with idolatry. We want a God we can touch, even if we've got to fashion it or make it ourselves. That's why God's people were always falling into idolatry, making these dumb images out of wood and stone, because they wanted a God they could touch and see. So what did God do? He gave us Jesus. The Lord Jesus satisfies our longing for a touchable God. 
He has all the godlike attributes of wisdom, power, love, and holiness, but he's also one we can see, touch, hear, and talk to. What did he say to the disciples when he resurrected from the dead? And walked in or, or walked through the door and it suddenly appeared to them and they freaked out and said, Oh my gosh, how'd you get in here? He said, It's me. And Thomas said, I don't believe it. And he said, Touch me. Put your hand in the wound in my side. Well, don't you know that was a dramatic moment? <laughs> don't you know? But he did it. And then Jesus ate fish with him, so he was not a vegetarian. <laughs> All of you vegans. He ate fish. And, and, and was, able to, was able to digest it, yet he walked through a door locked walked through a wall he would think and he would be there he was showing us what a glorified body looks like the same kind of body you and I are going to have can you imagine thinking and being there hallelujah no rush hour traffic Jesus would think and he would be there oh I could so go into the glorified body it's such a powerful you're all going to have one and you won't have to go to curves to get it it's true. Now watch this. Jesus is somebody we can see, touch, hear, and talk to. Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God. He is the one, Jesus, who gives visible expression to the invisible God. Jesus told Philip, Philip said, show us the Father. Show us the Father, Lord. And Jesus said, Philip, have you been with me so long that you don't get it yet? He that has seen me has seen the Father. Please understand that tonight, church. Whoever, you want to know what God's like? Read the red. You want to know what God's like? Read the red. Because everything Jesus said, did, all of his actions, all of his attitudes, all of his words, all of his movements were perfect image reflections of God. The word image is icon. We know what we get that from, right? Icon. The, the Greek word is icon, and it means likeness. He says he is the likeness. He is the exact likeness of the invisible God. We can't see God, but we can see Jesus. When Jesus was born, now carefully watch this. When Jesus was born, an unprecedented event took place. A new personality was not born as with all other children. When you and I were born, a new personality came into the world. When Jesus was born, a new personality did not come into the world. A person who had existed for all eternity came into the world. That's why Daniel called him the Ancient of Days. An ancient, eternal personality came into the world via a virgin. Say, Pastor, this is heavy stuff tonight. Jesus is heavy stuff. Hey, the bigger your Jesus is, the more miracles you will do. We need a bigger God. We need a bigger Christ. We need bigger faith. 
So I'm telling you what Paul is relaying to us here. The human and the divine were blended into one. An ancient personality came into the world, invaded planet Earth with a plan to overthrow the devil and the power of sin, death, hell, and the grave to redeem us back to God, to, to take paradise lost and make it paradise regained. So when Jesus looked at you, God was looking at you through his eyes. He was not normal. He was super normal. John tells us that the eternal word became flesh. The eternal word became flesh to dwell among us. Read with me John 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Wow. When God said, let there be light, Jesus was right there with him. When he said, let there be animals and birds and fishes of the sea, marine life, animal life, man, woman, Jesus was right there in the beginning was the word. He was with God and what was he? He was God. This one statement separates Jesus Christ from all others as far as east is from west. Because guess what? You can't say in the beginning was Muhammad or Buddha or Zoroaster or any other world religious leader. In the beginning, they weren't there. And, and they weren't with God and they weren't God. You can't say this about another another personality that ever trod planet earth but jesus christ he's in his own stratosphere he's unapproachable in comparison now watch this what god is jesus is what god does jesus does what god says jesus says there's not one iota of difference between God in heaven and Jesus on earth. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. Whatever I hear the Father saying, that's what I say. Whatever I see the Father doing, Jesus said, that's what I do. You want to see the Father, Philip? Look at me. Listen to me. Watch me. Study me. Oh, we serve a mighty Christ. Amen. Way, way greater than most Christians understand. This is why he could say to Philip, he that's seen me, has seen the Father. Now here's a fact. Jesus set before us a flawless, moment-by-moment, audiovisual, full-color, three-dimensional demonstration of what God is like. You know, some of these statements are, are so powerful that we could sit right here and think about each one of them for about five minutes and let it sink in. But I want you to understand the greatness, the magnificence, the vastness of this person called Jesus and what the Bible really tells us about him. He was the image of the invisible God. He was the blending of the human and the divine.
in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That blending, think about it, he wore a seamless robe. Remember that? They cast lots for his robe there at the cross. We're told that it was a seamless robe. That means, you know, there was no hem. There was no, it, was just, it was one piece. The blending of the human and the divine and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ was just like that seamless robe that he wore, woven throughout to be one indivisible whole. God, human, were so blended in Jesus, you couldn't see where one started and the other left, or one left and the other started. In the Gospels, we meet one, capital O, we meet one who was very human indeed, Jesus. He was born, he grew up, he went to school, he worked as a carpenter. All normal stuff, right? Human stuff. He became tired, hungry, thirsty. He experienced all the emotions of the human part or human heart, yet without sin. He never blew his stack, never got angry, never snapped at his mother, never snapped at his brothers. He was a joy to be around. He asked questions. He had curiosity. Uh, he enjoyed companionship. He was wholesome, delightful. And Jesus was perfectly balanced at all times in every way. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. I'm going to tell you, it was a joy for Mary to raise that boy, if I can call him that. What a joy he was. But now, he was a wonderful and attractive human being to whom all kinds of people were drawn. Human. At the same time, he was God. The demons instantly recognized him and were terrified. But wait a minute. He, he, we just saw all these things that were just so human. That he was all human, all God. All God, all human. God, man, man, God. He was human in all these ways, yet when he walked into a place where there was a demon, they fell at his feet, terrified, and screamed out at him, Have mercy. He had power to turn water into wine or multiply a few loaves and fishes into a banquet for a multitude as God. He walked on top of the water and the waves and commanded the storm to stop. Can you imagine? He cleansed lepers, healed all manner of sicknesses, and he raised the dead. He raised dead people. We see him, for instance, sound asleep in Peter's boat. That was his humanity. But when the storm hit, the next moment, he stands up in the presence of heaving waves and howling winds and commands nature to stop. And they did. That was his deity. Human, he slept. God, he told the waves to stop rolling. And they listened to him. At the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus wept along with Mary and Martha. He felt their grief. That was his humanity. But then he turned around and told a dead man, four days dead, to come out of the grave. And out of the grave, Lazarus walked, wrapped in grave clothes. As a man, he cried. As God, he raised the dead. All man, all God, all God, all man. The God-man. That was his deity. Jesus was all man and all God. He was the God-man. That's who we worship. 
Now, I'm going to say it again. There's not another person in all the history of the human race that can stand next to him. He is utterly unique, unprecedented, the undisputed Savior and Messiah of God. And he's coming back. And I'm going to tell you, don't miss next week because we're going to see that the whole universe is held together, glued together by his word. Don't miss it. Now, Paul next says, he's the firstborn of every creature. Now, a lot of people stop right there and say, ah, see there, Paul is saying he was born. That is, he didn't exist until he was born, but that's not what he's saying at all. This is not saying that Jesus was born first or created first of all created beings. In verse 16 of Colossians 1, Paul agrees with John's gospel by saying, by him, by Jesus, all things were created. Well, guess what? The creator of all things cannot also be created. This means he would have had to have created himself. Because he told us all things were created by him. Well, he was one thing in the world, in history. That means he would have had to have created himself, and he did not do that. He always was. Only the eternal creator can be involved in creating all things. This passage simply means that Jesus was there when creation began. He was there. The word firstborn, he's the firstborn of all creatures or all creation, also means that Jesus was the first to experience glorification at his resurrection. He was the first to be resurrected post-cross, post-shedding of the blood, he was the first to be resurrected. Many are going to come after him. That's what that means, firstborn. As Jesus got up from the dead, you're going to get up from the dead. Let's talk about what the Bible really says. You know, I, I found it interesting. I've been kind of going through the book of Acts a little bit lately, and I've noticed the, the apostles, everywhere they went, they preached, it says, it makes a point of telling us, they preached the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That was their message. Not just that he was there, that he died on the cross, but they said this Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And then they would preach, and if you believe on him, so will you be. The first among others who follow. That's what Jesus was. When he got up from the dead, he was the firstborn the first resurrected among others who will follow. As Jesus was resurrected from the dead, so shall we be. He was first, we shall follow. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us about it. Quote, listen to this. This is out of the um, New English version. He's the first crop of the harvest of those who have died. What does that mean? When he got up from the dead, he's the first of a whole crop, a whole harvest that's going to follow. Resurrected, just like him. Paul goes on, since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead came through one, two. That is, death came by Adam, resurrection comes by Jesus. He goes on, in the same way that everybody dies in Adam, so also everybody will be given life in Christ. That is, those who have believed in him. Each event will happen in the right order. Now read the next part with me, would you? Christ 
the first crop of the harvest, then those who belong to Christ at His coming. Oh, what a day that is going to be. When Jesus comes, there's going to be a whole lot of shaking going on in graveyards all over the world. Because up from the dead, there are going to be, listen, an innumerable multitude who have put their faith in Christ are coming up out of those graves. You really believe that, Pastor Jeff? If I didn't, I'd never preach again. Because that is the crux of our faith. This is not a little side dish on the plate of Christianity. This is the epicenter. He rose from the dead, and if he didn't, let's go home and watch American Idol. That's all there is. But since he did rise from the dead, he was the first crop. We're going to follow. We're going to follow. The trumpet will blow. The dead in Christ shall rise first. They will come out of that grave. God, by his mighty word, will pull together all the ashes, all of the bones, no matter if it was cremated or if they have laid in the dust for 2,000 years. By the word of God, they will be pulled together. They will receive a glorified body. They will be resurrected into his presence. They will meet the Lord in the air. They will see loved ones up there with them. There will be a reunion of sorts. All of those who have died in Christ will also be there. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Comfort one another with those words. This is not Brothers Grimm. This is not a fairy tale. This is not Greek mythology. This is Christianity in the raw. This is what it is. Next. Paul blows apart the Gnostic teaching that God did not create matter. We're doing good. Can you all take a little bit more? He bluntly tells us that Jesus was the creator of the universe. I really want everybody listening to get this. For by him, says Paul, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or principalities, or powers, look at the beginning of the verse. By him, all things were created. All things were created through him. We're going to get into this next week. And for him. Not to mention, this passage deals with origins. Origins are so crucial because our culture has totally bought into evolution. And when you buy into evolution, you have to deny this verse. By him all things were created. Evolution says, no, 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 that didn't happen. Everything came about by bazillions of years and time and chance. Okay? If you give time enough time and chance enough chance, then... You're finally going to have this thing called life. But the problem is, you always got to go back to origins. If you believe in the Big Bang, where did those swirling gases come from? You always got to go back to origins, the beginning. There was a beginning. There had to be something because something doesn't come from nothing. 
I've seen tornadoes, pictures of tornadoes all over the country. I have yet to see a tornado go through a place and hit a junkyard and leave a Mercedes. Have you? I'm being serious now. Give it enough time, enough chance. It doesn't make any sense. It is preposterous. See, so you have a choice. You can either go with evolution or you've got to go with the Word of God. Amen. By Him all things were created. All things were created through Him. Yes. Created, ex nihilo, something out of nothing. The only way you get something out of nothing is if there is a Creator who is able to speak it into existence because He is a Creator. A Creator creates something out of nothing. So, this verse blows evolutionary teaching out of the water. As Genesis 1 reveals, God as creator of all things, Colossians 1.16 traces all life and all material things back to Jesus Christ as the second person of the Godhead. And it traces it back to the supernatural creation of the world. Supernatural. The fact is that science doesn't know a thing about origins. Can I tell you the truth about science? I'm thankful to science when it's real science. I'm thankful to science for many things that, I mean, thank God we can get a, a shot and we don't have to worry about polio. I'm thankful for real science. But not agenda-driven science. Not science that will say it believes something so it can get a financial grant. I'm not thankful for science that has yet to prove that something is true, like evolution. Yet our children are forced to listen to it in all of the schools, but it has never been proven. Except, now watch, you can talk all day about one species begetting another species, or the transition from one species to the next. But the argument always comes down to origins. Where did life begin? Origins. How did it originate? Where did the first life come from? Or the first matter? Science never has and can't today answer that. The Bible does. By Him were all things created that are in heaven and here on earth. Jesus was there when the elephant was created, lions and tigers and bears, uh-huh. He was there when all of this, the birds of the sky, the fishes of the sea, it all went through the fingertips of Jesus as the second person of the Godhead. Here's a fact. Whenever a scientist pontificates regarding the origin of the universe, he is no longer speaking as a scientist. He's speaking as a philosopher. He's not saying this is what we know. He's saying this is what I think. Period. Our concept today of Jesus Christ is too small. Paul had no doubts at all as to who exactly Jesus was. Let's stand together and we'll read this Last part together.
Ready? Jesus of Nazareth was God over all, blessed forevermore, the second person of the Godhead, self-existing, uncreated, and the creator of the universe. Give him a hand of praise tonight. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Next time, Jesus Christ claims the universe for himself. Don't miss it next week. Let's thank the Lord now. We worship a mighty Christ, a mighty Messiah. Thank you, Lord, that you have translated us from the kingdom and the power of darkness into the kingdom of the dear Son. Thank you that we walk in light and not in dark, in life and not in death, as found and not as lost. Thank you, Lord. And help us to be true to the testimony of Jesus, to this wicked and wayward generation. For they need to hear the truth about it. Let's sing one stanza to him. And there's nobody up here. Well, you know what? I'm going to make a couple of announcements. All right. Let's, let's just worship him a minute. Lord, we just thank you. And we praise you. And we bless you for your goodness.